the great fundamental issue now before our people can be stated briefly. It is, are the American people fit to govern themselves, to rule themselves, to control themselves? I believe they are. My opponents do not. I believe in the right of the people to rule. I believe again that the American people are as a whole capable of self-control and of learning by their mistakes. Welcome to the Serve to Lead podcast. I'm your host, James Strzok. As we get started, may I ask a favor? Please help us reach a growing audience by taking just a moment and giving us a five-star rating on iTunes. This podcast is supported by listeners. Please consider joining me on Substack, where you'll also have access to frequent posts on current and historical events. It's an absolute delight to have Philip Howard in the house. He's a longtime advocate of legal, governmental, and political reform for the United States. He's the author of numerous books and articles, including the memorable bestseller, The Death of Common Sense. Philip Howard is the founder and chairman of the Common Good Initiative and is a senior counsel at the eminent law firm Covington and Burling. Philip Howard, welcome to the Serve to Lead podcast. Great to be with you, Jim. Philip Howard, the United States is in uncertain waters. The international order is unsettled. Domestic politics are roiled. More and more Americans self-identify as independents, walking away from the duopoly. Presidents of both parties have been at best disappointments for a generation. Against all this, the need for reform has presumably never been greater, yet it's hard to focus attention amid so many crises. How do you navigate such currents? It's quite difficult. It's like being a ship in a storm. You know, the waves are coming at you from all directions and and extremism grows the more people are frustrated. So they they reach out for extremist um, solutions, whether it's on the right or the left. So I think it is a, a, a difficult and uh, in many ways uh, dangerous time. You founded a group that's highly respected called Common Good that brings together people of very political persuasions and experience and all kinds of diverse viewpoints. What are your top priorities? Well, um, uh, well, first, you know, we have basically only one idea, which is that only people make things happen so that government can't work without human agency. If the teacher doesn't have authority to run the classroom, it's not going to work. If the principal doesn't have authority to run the school, the school is probably not going to be very good. If the police chief doesn't have authority to fire a police or even reassign a policeman who's, quote, tightly wound, as Derek Chauvin, who killed George Floyd, was, then the police department is not going to work very well and it's not going to be trusted. So so our view is that... um, is that making the waters, sort of calming the waters in this country will be a, uh, a lot easier if we can actually give back to people the authority that goes along with their responsibility so that things start to work again. And this applies in almost every area of public life, whether we want to build infrastructure, you've got to have an official as authority to give permits. <laughs> Uh, whether you want to run a school, uh, um, whether you want uh, government not to waste money, you've got to give officials the authority to 
enter into contracts that are commercially reasonable and not have thousand page rule books that basically legislate feather bedding. And what do you mean by feather bedding? Oh, um, rules that, that, that work rules that require you to hire people even when they're not needed. So, for example, in building the Second Avenue subway tunnel in New York a few years ago, uh, there was a, um, a, a research report by the New York Times which found that it cost two and a half billion dollars per mile which was five times more than a similar tunnel in Paris, France, using the same machine. <laughs> mm -hmm. And why is that? Why do they cost five times as much in France, which is not exactly known for its efficient labor policies? Um, it's because there were these work rules that required there to be a multiple of the number of people required to operate the machine. Instead of the four people needed to operate the machine, they had 25. Hmm. Well, let's talk about the civil service system and bringing up those words, one recognizes that's a topic that can elicit yawns from many. But at one time, it was a major public issue in this country. We had a president assassinated, President Garfield, in part uh, related to civil service reform. We had a president who was highly controversial, Theodore Roosevelt, who was the most experienced manager of public enterprises before or since who spent his career on it. Why are you focused on that now? You know, many of the um, things in American government that frustrate people are uh, the direct result of not being able to hold public employees accountable. So democracy itself is just a process of accountability. Every two years or four years, uh, people run for office. And if we don't like the way they've done their job, we elect somebody new. We hold them accountable. And James Madison, back at the founding, said democracy requires an unbroken chain of responsibility from the highest level down to the lowest level. Uh, and so... Uh, government is uniquely dependent on what the Constitution calls the powers of the people who hold public office. And what's happened with civil service and really with public unions influence over the last 50 years or so is that, is that there's no accountability in the <laughs> in, in government at any level. That means zero accountability. There are 300,000 teachers or so in California. An average of two are dismissed each year for poor performance. And California has one of the worst school systems in the country. Well, how can that be? It's because it's impossible to hold people accountable. And so democracy can't work. We elect people, but they actually, uh, it's, it's as if we've cut off their hands. They can't actually decide well, who's doing a good job running that department? Let's make that work. Or who's doing a good job running that school? Let's put them in charge. They can't do that. I think one thing that many, many, many people became aware of during the pandemic in 2020, 2021, was the power of public employee unions of teachers. And I think it seems that 
the United States has set up a collective bargaining system for public employees almost in a fit of absent-mindedness. I mean, in the 1960s, during that whole professionalization of government trend that swept the country with full-time legislatures and so on, at that time, there was also a move for collective bargaining. So, for example, in California, Governor Reagan, who had a career as not only a union member but a union leader, uh, signed off on collective bargaining for police and other local personnel. A few years later, Governor Jerry Brown uh, signed off on the same powers for school and state employees. And now today, it's just grown in ways no one could have foreseen. How do you think that needs to be thought about now? And how can one deal with it to make them accountable in your sense? Yeah, I, it's a really important question because truly government can't work and it can't be affordable until we solve this problem. Um, I think the first thing we have to recognize is, and you stated it accurately, we we allowed collective bargaining in the 60s really absentmindedly. Nobody focused on it. Nobody really focused on the difference between a private union and a public union. So here's the difference. In a private union, the the union has an interest in the company doing well financially because if if they demand too much too too much too many pensions and wages and such the company goes out of business and everyone loses their job so there's a natural tension um that that keeps the range of bargaining with private unions you know within a narrow range uh, in the public sector government can't go out of business we have to have the police we need the schools you know all these other things and so there's no limiting factor. And also public employees are in the inside. So all of a sudden they have to, uh, w when you're negotiating uh, with, with them, they can exercise power where they just don't deliver public services. And if you're a politician, there's nothing worse for, for your career. It immediately ends if the police go on strike or the sanitation workers go on strike. So unlike a private business, which can absorb that kind of threat, uh, the public sector really cannot. And then probably the worst thing is that because of collective bargaining, unions got the power to collect dues, to organize millions of workers into collecting dues, which then become huge campaign finance sources. So that public unions are the most powerful focused interest group in in the in America today. And yeah. and you have to be a fool to go against them. And a couple of points that are very practical for politicians. Uh, one is that the unions have tremendous power not only in their direct financial contributions, but also boots on the ground. And also the politicians have this peculiar situation where the consequences of being, let's say, overly generous often don't fall on them. It's their successors. That's right. So pension promises will come due long after the politician has left office. So we have a situation in the state of Illinois now where 25% of the state's budget every year goes to fund uh, 
pension and health benefits for retired workers, 25%, just off the top. I mean, it's just, you know, and some of these people, I think there are 20,000 um, retirees who collect six-figure pensions. I mean, we're talking about billions of dollars every year going to people collecting 100 or 150 or $200,000 in pensions. Well, let's talk a minute about collective bargaining and the civil service system. How is it, Philip Howard, that we would think it wise to have a civil service system that seemed to have been set up uh, in one understanding as an alternative to private sector unionism, but then we ended up putting a collective bargaining system on top of a civil service system, one would have thought that is directly against the kind of accountability you're advocating. Um, you know, what's happened, civil service was put in, as you said, after the assassination of Garfield in 1881, um, it, it was put in as to be a merit system. It was not a system of tenure. It, it would replace the spoil system where jobs were handed out by political affiliation. It would replace it by hiring people based on how well they did on tests. There was no limitation on firing, in part because there was a uh, um, opinion by the attorney general that said you could not limit the president's authority to fire people. Under Article Two of the U.S. Constitution, executive power is vested in a president, and that includes the power to, 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 to fire people. You know, to run the administration of government. So, so here you had a merit system, the main premise of which is that public jobs would no longer be a property right of whoever won the election, so they wouldn't be spoiled. Now, 140 years later. Uh, we have a public employment system that's based on the idea that public jobs are a property, right? You can never fire anybody. You can never hold anybody accountable. There's so many work rules, you can't even manage an office. And you have not only civil service rules that have been changed to be overly restrictive, but then, as you say, on top of it, you have these collective bargaining agreements that say things like, uh, you have to consult and get the agreement of the union if you get a new photocopying machine about how to use it. I mean, just incredibly trivial, mundane management choices are in the control of the unions. And you mentioned the teachers not going back to work with COVID. You know, all the other essential workers had to go back to work. I mean, nurses were working and people in the grocery stores were working and garbage men were working. But the teachers are so powerful that they shut down the school for years. So what do we do about it? Uh, I think it's impossible to fix politically. I think that the public unions uh, are, are so powerful politically through money and through boots on the ground. 23 million Americans work in the public sector. 23 million. So that's the, like a sixth of the total workforce. The um, uh, public unions, as I said, are among the largest campaign contributors. 
and and all those people vote. And so if you organize them and allow them to operate as one block, then all of a sudden they become, and they say this themselves, they basically elect the people who are their bosses. They get so involved in the political system that you need them to get elected. So now there's no one managing, you know, the the, the foxes are in charge of the hen house. And so, um, so I don't think you can solve it politically. So I'm in, uh, working on a, um, um, a um, um, paper right now, Common Goods working on a, on a long research paper arguing that the public union should be unconstitutional. Could you tell us a little bit about that and how might that relate to litigation that has been ongoing for several years relating to uh, mandatory dues in public unions? Um, well, the, the, um, they are related, uh, and those cases are quite helpful to us. But uh, no one has ever made the argument that, uh, that public unions uh, have preempted democratic governance. You know, the whole basis of democracy is we elect people to run the police department or to run the school system. And because of public union collective bargaining agreements and other statutes they've gotten passed through, um, the people we elect no longer have that authority. And so the, the one thing in common with every election for the last, you pick it, 40 years, is we elect people promising to fix something and it never gets fixed. <laughs> well, why does it never get fixed? Because they don't have any management authority because of the public unions. So no one's made this kind of first principles argument. And so we are, uh, we're developing the, the indictment and the argument and there's something called the non-delegation doctrine where you can't give to a private body the authority to make public decisions. Well, who gave state legislatures or others the authority to, to public unions who basically are dictating public decisions? So, um, you know, and we think there's self-dealing. There's an inherent conflict of interest. Public employees owe, owe a duty of loyalty to the public and the public unions are engaged in a multi-decade effort to undermine the public interest by precluding supervisory judgments of government. That's what they do. They don't let <laughs> public supervisors hold employees accountable. Uh, so, so, um, so we think uh, a powerful case can be made that, that the public union should be unconstitutional. Well, that's very powerful and very audacious. Let's open the aperture a little bit, and I would like to focus on something else that you've been a longtime leader in, and you referred to it, infrastructure, and how this country's infrastructure has become so far outdated in many areas, and even when there have been massive infusions of money, the costs are so high that the results are frankly pitiful. And one thinks about 
you have a sort of a nodding up of various bureaucracies. You've got government bureaucracy, you've got the public employee unions, you've got large uh, private sector companies and private sector unions that also have uh, requirements and limitations. How do you untangle all that in the context <laughs> of, say, infrastructure in a way that brings accountability where we can look at the various parts? Uh, well, that's a really good question. Um, uh, first, you have to be able to give permits on a timely basis. And so we've been involved in, in uh, promoting reforms, some of which have been enacted in the recent $1.2 trillion infrastructure bill. So we, we basically said there should be a, a two-year time limit on permitting, and we said that environmental reviews should be severely restricted and the law restricts them generally to 200 pages instead of what's often thousands of pages, you know, and takes a decade to get a permit. So one, you need to get, uh, be able to get permits. Secondly, there needs to be some uh, oversight body because of all the different parties involved who, which has the authority to, uh, to look at the contracts for infrastructure to make sure that they're commercially reasonable. And uh, as the example of the Second Avenue subway I gave, where it cost five times what it should have, so we wasted $2 billion on a one mile and should have <laughs> of, of subway. The, um, th there are all these requirements of feather bedding and, and, and other requirements that work rules where one worker is not allowed to help out another worker in a different job category. I mean, literally, I mean, these, these things are absurd. And you just need somebody to oversee that. So when the federal government sends out money to a state, which then gives out a contract to fix a bridge or do whatever they're doing, the state has, has, to, con has to show that it's going to... Uh, contract it in a way that doesn't just give money away to favored, you know, interest groups. Uh, but there's no authority like that now. And the Biden administration is going in exactly the opposite direction. They're doing whatever the unions tell them to do. Let's talk a little bit about the legal profession. It's very striking to me, and I'm one of many people who admire your work and your career path and you seem to be part of what is regrettably a bit of a lost tradition, the lawyer statesman. When you go back in our history, when you had, of course, James Madison, who you referred to, who in many ways is the father of the Constitution and was a very practical lawyer of public, of public issues. You had, of course, Jefferson, you had Adams, then you had Lincoln, you had Elihu Root, in the early 20th century, who founded the American Law Institute as an engine of reform. Yet today, as Chief Justice Rehnquist wrote in the 80s and others have said since, that tradition seems to be in decline. What do you think? Yes, it is in decline. It's interesting. I was When I became a lawyer in the mid-70s, uh, there were some of those old-timers still around, You know, people who ran law firms who had been Deputy Secretary of State or, or the like, or it helped write the securities laws and the New Deal. Um, and 
and I always thought that was one of the advantages of becoming a lawyer. You could both have a distinguished profession, but you you could also be uh, a, a civic leader or a public leader, you know, by by using your legal skills. And I've enjoyed doing that in one way or another my you know, my whole life, and I feel lucky that I've been able to do it. But few of my colleagues have done it that way. I think the demands of the professions and the demands of specialization and and, and frankly, this sort of the the comp the complexities of modern life make people feel that they things are too big, they're too complicated, they can't make a difference. It's not true, actually. <laughs> they can make a difference. But 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 people, uh, but the tradition, as you say, has been lost. And part of the problem I feel with modern American democracy is that it's been outsourced to professionals, to people who are just professional politicians. And it doesn't have uh, people who, for most of their lives, were business leaders or lawyers or doctors or whatever. You know, I, I've reflected a lot on the fact that I believe it was one law school class, I think 1960, when in one class they had Michael Trainer, who you know, who became head of the Environmental Law Institute, William Rucklesaus, who became known for a number of accomplishments, including being a hero in the Watergate scandal, Michael Dukakis, former governor of Massachusetts and presidential candidate, Paul Sarbanes, former U.S. Senator, whose son uh, continues to serve in the House. And one thing that you notice among all those people as they came out of the immediate aftermath of the Second World War, I believe they were even part of the peacetime draft that was then shortly after the universal draft uh, removed after the Eisenhower years. Do you think that kind of national service participation and ethos could be part of this? I think national service is a great idea. I think Americans need to feel a sense of ownership and um, ownership in our society. And and the, the reality is people can make a difference. You can get involved in all kinds of things in communities and change the way they work. And smaller communities tend to be easier to do that in, than larger ones, but I've spent my adult life in New York City, and uh, a friend of mine after 9-11 called up and said, uh, you know, the uh, we should put spotlights down there to remember this, you know, what's been lost and how terrible it was. And, and so I got David Rockefeller to help me because he had a big name. And, and we persuaded the mayor to let us organize the Tribute and Light Memorial that now goes on every year where these twin beams of light go up for a mile and a half in the sky. And um, that's just something that, that, that we did. <laughs> there was no, the government didn't pay for it. The government didn't have the idea. We just, a couple of civic leaders organized it. So, you know, that's the kind of thing that was enormously satisfying uh, if you're the civic leader, and 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 it's great for people to have that sense of ownership. But we've, by and large, lost it. 
Let's talk one more minute about the legal profession. You may recall that there was an article that received a great deal of attention 20 years ago from a, now a federal judge, then a private lawyer named Patrick Schiltz, who wrote in the Vanderbilt Law Review uh, about what he called being a happy, healthy, and ethical member of an unhappy, unhealthy, and unethical profession. And he basically made the case that people would enter with high hopes and goals as lawyers, but as they became part of the bureaucratized corporate law system, they would begin slowly to shave their hours, to bill their clients, they cut corners, first little places, and all of a sudden, their main avenue of status, wealth, and self-esteem became entirely based on money which seems really discordant for what the legal profession ought to be. Rather than public citizens upholding a higher standard, they're actually hitting a lower standard, sort of like rogue cops in suits. How do we <laughs> get at this? You know, it's a problem because um, ultimately, um, professionalism is about values. Who upholds the values? Of higher values of the profession, of fair dealing, of, of honesty, of that sort of thing. And one of the legacies of the, of the 1960s is that, is that we couldn't necessarily trust our values because we had lived with the values of segregation. We had um, companies had poured pollution into rivers and had caught on fire, you know, so we had um, reason to doubt our values. But the trouble is, if you simply abandon values, you say, okay, then we're no longer going to rely on anybody's values. Then all of a sudden you have a world where it's sort of a, you know, a sort of um, um, anything goes. And the bar professions, there was a prominent bar profession in New York, New York City Bar Association, where you really had to go through a extensive vetting process to become a member. And now you can become a member just by proving you've never been indicted <laughs> when you have a law degree. So, so it's, so we kind of gave up on the idea of values and, uh, you know, I was a practicing lawyer for a long time and, and I would, I would have lawyers on the other side who would say things in briefs that were lies that simply were not true. And that would never have happened 50 years ago. And, and the part of that that I have found particularly jarring, uh, and maybe it's because I have worked in the legal field for part of my career early, and I've worked with lawyers uh, quite a lot, but I don't practice as a lawyer. I've been in business for many years, and maybe I didn't see the change gradually coming. But it struck me that it's somewhat akin or parallel to what's happened in finance uh, in the 2008 crisis, where you had some long-term companies, uh, organizations, partnerships, sometimes companies, who had built up names over decades, even a century, and they basically cashed them out uh, in very short-term thinking and took advantage of people's trust. You could no longer say this law firm or this company by that name, I just know they can be trusted. That appears to be gone in the law and there appears to be very little sense among lawyers, even of highly prestigious firms, I'm not talking about Covington and Burling, but others that are very eminent 
where they simply are disconnected from the history. And one index of that is not just the interpersonal dealings or in cases, but if you look at their websites, you realize that's almost perfunctory. There's no connection to their history. Yeah. It's interesting. We, um, I mean, one of the great things about the firm I'm with is that, is that people do value professionalism more than money. I had a, a dispute once uh, where a client, um, I had negotiated the breakup of a business and it had been a very good result for my client who had made a lot of money as a result of it. And was and he couldn't have been more effusive at, at, after the end. And um, about a month afterwards, uh, he said, you know, I was looking at this agreement and I think we can make this other argument that certain employees are not vested and therefore I could get a couple million more dollars and I don't like those people anyway. And I said, oh, I see the ambiguity in this term sheet that you're referring to, but, but you will recall in the middle of the night when I was negotiating this, that was a term that was very explicit that those people were going to get their, that money and you were going to agree to it. And he said, I don't really remember it that way. And I said, I do, because I was negotiating it on your behalf. And, and he said, well, but you're my lawyer and there's the ambiguity, so I want you to make that argument. And I said, I'm your lawyer, but I'm also a professional. And I know what I negotiated and what I promised, and I can't make that argument. And he said, are you quitting? I said, well, I'm not quitting. I'm just telling you what the limits of what I consider my professional obligations are, and I can't make that argument. Uh, and he fired us. He refused to pay his bill, which was a really big bill. Mm -hmm. uh, because I refused to make this argument. And so our firm had to ultimately sue him to get paid. And to the firm's credit, and we're talking about millions of dollars in fees here. This is a very big case. The firm's credit, they never criticized me one bit for making that decision. They said, you did exactly the right thing. It's our values that ultimately determine who we are you know, character is destiny, and that's the kind of firm we want to be, even though it ended up costing them millions of dollars. Wow. Well, we need more people like Philip Howard and Atticus Finch, and they both seem pretty rare these days. I guess they always are. Let's talk a little bit about your life and work, Philip Howard. You are now in the senior counsel category, which meaning, like myself, we're in the older realm. Uh, we're both past the age of what would have been retirement, say, 50 years ago or 100 years ago in a different world. How do you think about this phase of life? I mean, you're going full tilt. You're pushing for all these very ambitious reforms. How do you think about yourself over the next yeah. 10 to 20 years? Well, I'm, uh, I'm 73 years old. Uh, um, as you said, I'm active. I go biking 20 or 30 miles when the weather's good. I'm I still play competitive squash. So uh, so I'm trying to keep myself in shape. You never know what, you know, past a certain age, you get age-appropriate diseases. You never know what's going to happen. Um, but I, you know, I really enjoy uh, doing the policy work that I do with Common Good and commongood.org. And, um, and I really feel that the next decade will be 
one in which um, these roiling waters that we were talking about um, have to get resolved resolved in one way or another. And I think democracy can work well, but we have to restore a sense of legitimate authority where we let people have the authority to take responsibility and we let other people have the authority to judge them. And of course, there's nothing more politically incorrect than making a judgment about somebody else today. But the truth is, it is a judgment. All day long, we make judgments about other people. You know, how good this podcast is, how sensible my ideas are. Every Everybody listening is judging. And so, um, so I think there is a real opportunity to kind of put the keel back on democracy. And, and the keel is one of individual responsibility and let people begin, start making judgments again. And I'm determined to help lead that. Well, let's look back the other way for a minute. What advice would you give the 20 year old Philip Howard? Oh, I think I think I would uh, well be, you know, follow your instincts, uh, you know, figure out what it is that you've got a knack for and what you enjoy doing, because all people are different. I mean, Tocqueville, I think, said there's an astonishing diversity to the human species. There's no such thing as being smart or stupid or any of that. You know, people are good at different things. Figure out what it is you enjoy doing, what you're good at, do that, but don't give up on the society around you. Ask the questions, why aren't we dealing with this homeless person? Or why can't the schools work better? And if you start pursuing those lines of inquiry, you will find a way to make a difference and make it better. You have worked and thought about so many issues. Are there significant matters relating to law, government, politics, about which you've changed your mind over time? Oh, yes. Um, you know, you you reach new understandings about why things work or don't work. Um, um, I mean, one of the things that I think is really important is that no system will make things work. You can create systems that allow things to work, but ultimately, whether a school's any good, a classroom's any good, or, you know, anything, a law firm's any good, is will depend on the particular people and how much energy they put in and what their values are and what their skills are. And accomplishment is incredibly idiosyncratic. And people who talk about public policy as if you can create a new system or pass a law and make it work. I mean, we just had these, this law passed that legislated the reforms that I've been advocating in infrastructure permitting. It's great. You know, you'll have uh, shorter environmental impact statements. You'll get permits within a year. But it's only going to work if the people executing that stick to it you can always come up with a reason to make it longer to delay more not to make the hard decisions so everything depends on human execution i mean that's one thing and so you know i think one of the problems with the legal system i never understood this until i was 
till the end of my career. In the litigation system is that uh, juries can't decide law. They can only decide disputed issues of fact, who ran the red light, who's telling the truth. So you can't have a system of justice that's, that's trusted unless judges actually look at a situation and say, I hold the boundaries of reasonable dispute or this. Maybe you have a claim for your broken leg, but not for $10 million, because that's extortion. That's not justice. And judges no longer do that. They don't draw those boundaries. I never understood that. I always thought that, well, if you had a neutral jury system and it was impartial, that that's the fairest you could be. Well, that's not true because people will game that system. Philip Howard, what have you learned in the past five years in any part of your life and work that has changed your life for the better? Well, uh, during COVID, um, uh, we, my wife's family had a place uh, with some land outside of New York and uh, and we needed to isolate because of COVID. And so I really started f for the first time um, um, taking care of the land. I have a tractor, you know, I was cleaning up trees that had fallen in the woods for 80 years, uh, um, beginning to notice all the wildlife that's there, you know, and what their habits were. <laughs> Uh, figuring out uh, how to, I mean, you name it, you know, plant trees, get rid of dead trees, um, how to make the fruit trees bear fruit. And it was incredibly satisfying to, um, to be reconnected to nature after an adult life spent in Manhattan. <laughs> mm -hmm. So uh, that's, um, and I think it's, it's very healthy to go out into nature. Are there any books or art or creative works that have been particularly influential on you that you'd recommend to others? I know that you have been involved as a photographer and you do keep a hand in the arts and culture realm. Well, I think it's important to use different aspects of your brain. Um, uh, I've, I've really enjoyed uh, reading, um, uh, you know, I make a point every day of, before I go to bed of reading books that are not related to what I'm working on. And, um, uh, and, and there's just so many br really brilliant, wonderful books, fiction and nonfiction. The, the Patrick O'Brien sailing novels from which the movie Master and Commander were made hmm. are, are there, there are 20 of the books. They're incredibly beautiful books about how hard it is to run a, you know, a, a, a early 1800s sailing ship. This is unbelievably complicated. And, and, the, and, the, and, and how running a ship, how the character of people matters, good character and bad character, and, and how many surprises there are, and you have to be, you have to roll with the punch. There's so many lessons in a, in, in a series like that. Um, you know, there's just, fantastic uh, uh, there's a beautiful book about and with a uh, by Mark Helprin called a soldier 
of the Great War about an art historian in Italy, um, and you know, set during 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 World War One, and it's just a beautiful book that that incorporates many aspects of of you know life and art and values and love and the like. There's you know there's uh, you know I wish I were younger so I could read more more find more books like that. Well, something tells me you've got a long way to go, and a lot of us are looking forward to seeing and benefiting from all that you do. In the mid 20th century, a distinguished journalist and politician, Claire Booth Luce, famously instructed John F. Kennedy that everyone, even presidents, are ultimately encapsulated and recalled in a single sentence. What would you like your one sentence to be? He made things happen that wouldn't have happened otherwise. Hmm. That's a very, very good one. Are there any other points on these topics uh, that you'd like to leave us with today? And I want to quickly <laughs> add a parenthetical that I hope we can do this again, Philip Howard, in the future, because I think there are other topics on reform that you are pushing and making a difference on that we'd want to cover then, too. Well, yeah, I would, you know, the only thing I'd like to say is going back to the sort of the one idea that I write about, which is um, human agency. It's really people make a difference. Individuals make a difference. And, and that's in any setting. It's, it's, it's true at a dinner table. It's true. Um, it's really true in any setting. And uh, and I think people, particularly young people as they're growing older, can and growing into their careers, will see, will find so many occasions where, where how they think about things matters, and and the, and it's different than the way other people think about things. And I learned um, my big break in life was when. I was a teenager in college. Um, I got a job as the gopher uh, at the Oak Ridge National Laboratory for a Nobel Prize winner. Mm. And I would have lunch most days of the week with a small group of people in the civil defense section at Oak Ridge, led by Eugene Vigner, who was a Manhattan Project physicist. And so here we were, we would sit together and have lunch and every once in a while, I'd pipe up and say something. And they'd say, well, that's interesting. You ought to pursue that and do this, or you ought to pursue that. And, and what that gave me, or the beginnings of what it gave me, was confidence that my ideas mattered. And, and so I carry, I've carried that forth in life. And I've done a lot of things that my friends haven't done because I had the sense that my ideas mattered. Well, guess what? Everybody's ideas matter. And you shouldn't not act on them because you think the world's too big. It's not too big. Your ideas matter. Mm. Well, that's a great place to encapsulate your tremendous contributions. Philip Howard, it's been a delight to have you with us today. And thank you for your ongoing service in reforming America's legal, governmental, and political systems at a hinge moment. Well, it's great to be with you, and I look forward to coming back.
And thanks to you, our listeners, for being with us. Please send me ideas for future guests and topics. And follow us on Twitter at James Strzok and connect via our website, Serve to Lead, or subscribe at Substack. Until next time, take care, be strong, and serve to lead. These are not dark days. These are great days. The greatest our country has ever lived. And we must all thank God that we have been allowed, each of us, according to our station, to play a part in making these days memorable in the history of our race.